Now on view at SCAD Fash, Manish Aurora's Life is Beautiful. Renowned for dazzling designs and a rainbow of colors, Manish Aurora has brought the talent and craftsmanship of India's rich sartorial history to the global forefront, earning international acclaim on runways across three continents. Designing in India since the 1990s, Aurora's glittering garments celebrate extravagant expressions of self through varied materials, techniques, and silhouettes in a triumphant union of Western and Eastern aesthetics adapted to today's multicultural society with a touch of humor. Find out more at scadfash.org. Support for WABE comes from 100 Miles, a nonprofit committed to preserving Georgia's 100-mile coast. Protecting this critical coastal ecosystem takes all of us. Watch the stories of the innovators and future leaders who help keep our coast flowing at OurGeorgiaCoast.org. From WABE in Atlanta, this is City Lights. I'm Lois Reitzes. Thank you for listening. Sound design is an underappreciated aspect of filmmaking. Making waves, the art of cinematic sound, demonstrates the history and use of sound in motion pictures. Filmmaker and producer Karen Johnson will tell us about her 2019 documentary and exploring an art form most people experience but take for granted. First, on Thursday, the Atlanta-based new music ensemble Bent Frequency, the Bremen Museum, and Neuronina present Mirror a live-streamed concert and event featuring cutting-edge music by six women composers who happen to be among today's leading composers. Saxophonist and Professor Jan Barry Baker is the co-director of Bent Frequency. She joins us now with Leslie Gordon, executive director of the Bremen Museum. Welcome to City Lights. Thank you. Thank you. Jan, Bent Frequency was founded 18 years ago, and one of your ensemble's primary goals is to champion the work of historically underrepresented composers. How has the conversation around representation in music evolved since Bent's early days? That's a great question. Yes, a lot of things have changed. I mean, we've always been interested in championing really great music by interesting up-and-coming composers, but the more and more studies that were done on representation in our country's larger ensembles, we, you know, we're starting to realize that actually we're not doing a very good job of representing all of the composers that are out there. And so that has become our primary goal in the past five years is to really seek out 
those composers whose music is underrepresented in our small niche of chamber music in classical music. And we have just discovered an incredible array of artistic voices. And honestly, we have so much music, we, we don't even have enough seasons to, <laughs> to program all of the things that we have found. And so it actually has really allowed us to expand our vision of what is possible and the types of things that we want to play to something that's even more fulfilling than we could ever have imagined. It's been really terrific. Oh, that's great. How is bent frequency changing classical music's inclusivity problem with mirrors? Well, this program features six incredible composers who are all active on the scene, including Guggenheim winners, major foundation winners, the 2020 Heinz Award winner, people who are really doing things that are important for their communities, not only activists in their own communities, but really drawing attention to, I mean, it's the very end of Women's History Month, and in fact, the beginning of April, but we're celebrating Women's History Month by featuring their works, none of which have been performed in Georgia before. So we're excited about that. And we are even more excited to bring to the table, literally after the event, at a roundtable event, four of these composers to interact with our performers and our audience, more importantly. So Alyssa Weinberg, Nomi Epstein, Gabriella Lena Frank, and Judith Shayton will join us to discuss their work, the ideas of how identities play into their compositions and artistic output, and just a discussion about their works in general. Mirrors will feature music by six women of Jewish heritage, including the title piece Mariotte by composer Betty Olivero. How does Mariotte reflect the overall spirit of this program? Well, I think the idea behind that work is something that is really integral to the whole entire sort of idea behind the the concert itself, and that is playing off of each other and this idea of shadowing and living in people's reflections and trying to then live together and to allow our differences to really amplify our own existence or our own ways of life. And so this idea of imaging or mirroring that which is around you is really something that is important to the entire concert itself. We've spoken with curators and other museum directors about their efforts to diversify collections as well as their programming. Leslie, how are you working to make the Bremen Museum more inclusive? Well, one of our goals has been, since I got here, to really expand our audience and evolve into, into not just a space on Spring Street, but in a way, a cultural facilitator. And that means a lot of collaboration and inclusivity of new voices, also differences of opinion and using the topics at hand and using the arts to sometimes get into what could be called difficult conversations. So when Bent Frequency approached me, when Stuart and Jan approached me, and this was before Jan moved to LA, we were talking about an in-person concert using this music to really tell a story and reflect on the wealth of musics that are out there. And it is contemporary classical music or new music as some people call it, 
But the point is to broaden our audiences and to ask people to give us a chance and give us a listen and see what you might learn. The reason that Neuronino was so excited about partnering with us, of course, is that they use music to tell the Jewish story too. So this was a perfect collaboration. But as I said, we see ourselves as a becoming more of a cultural facilitator. And that means that can be conversations, that can be exhibitions, that can be music programs, that can even be dance programs. And I will add, you mentioned Stuart. Stuart Gerber is the co-director of Bent Frequency, also a GSU faculty member. Yes, correct. And Stuart actually is the co-founder of Bent Frequency, uh, formed back in 2003. So he's the only remaining original member of Bent Frequency. Oh, wow. And your move to LA, is this for good? It is, actually. I am now the professor of saxophone and was an area head at UCLA. I am continuing to run Bent Frequency from afar with Stuart. And we are very excited, actually, about this continued partnership, not only because you know, we play together as a duo and run this ensemble together, but we feel that this actually will expand Bent Frequency's reach on a front across the country and we'll be able to hopefully present a number of our programs here as well as in Atlanta. How exciting for you to be on the UCLA faculty. Congratulations. Thank you. Gabriella Elena Frank is another composer whose music you'll feature. Jen, you'll perform a very moving piece of Frank's, one of her sonatas. Tell us why you selected this work. Well, this work is interesting. Gabriella is such a fascinating composer overall. She was born with profound hearing loss, and she has, over the course of her compositional career and an advocacy career, really championed works by composers much like herself, those from underrepresented communities, those with disabilities. And she's created this Creative Academy of Music that she runs out uh, in California, actually, called the Gabriela Lina Frank Creative Academy of Music. And as a multiracial Latina, she is, her mother was a Peruvian Chinese descent, and her father was a Lithuanian Jewish descent, she is oftentimes bringing in various musics into her own writing. And this sonata is no different. It's really an interesting work that brings alive the Andean concept of mesazahi, which is championed by Peruvian folklorists, where cultures can coexist without subjugating one another. This is in her own words and her program notes. And so again, tying really into this idea of harmonious existence and the coming together of various forces and lives and styles. And the beautiful thing about this duo piano work is that we have two fabulous pianists who are married to one another, who are able to perform this work together because they're able to practice together on one piano. So we have Eric Jenkins and Erica Tazawa who will perform the Sonata Serana number one. 
Can you tell us about some of the other music and composers featured in the concert? Sure thing, yes. Table Talk is by Alyssa Weinberg. Melissa is a current PhD student at Princeton. The work that she wrote is actually for two-hand vibraphone, which is interesting as well. You, you often see two-hand piano, but not oftentimes do you see two hands on the same percussion instrument. And so Victor, Victor Pons and Stuart Gerber will perform table talk, and Alyssa will join us after the concert for more discussion on her work on her sort of path in, in composition and where she's at. She's a young composer, but a very successful composer. The second work on the program will be Prayer by Lyra Auerbach. originally written for violin. I'll be performing it on saxophone. The saxophone version was created by Lyra in 2009. And this was originally written for Vadim Gluzman as a reaction to the tragedy of the Holocaust. So it's a very somber and beautiful work that introduces kind of this cantorial singing style in the opening and moves into more of a dance-like theme in the middle section. But it's really just a, a hauntingly beautiful work that I'm, I'm truly honored to perform and contribute to this program. The third piece on the concert is by Nomi Epstein called Violin and Piano. It'll be performed by Helen Kim and Erica Tozawa. And this plays on the color study sort of the transformation of colors that can happen with various types of violin techniques. And an interesting story is that I've known Nomi since graduate school. We went to grad school together at Northwestern a number of years ago, and she is still active running her own contemporary ensemble in Chicago. And she will join us as well at the end of the program. Another piece, Grito de Corazon by Judith Shayton, will be performed by Stuart Gerber and myself.
this is a work that uses video as well as electronics. And so Stuart and I actually recorded this from a distance. I recorded here in the music studios at UCLA and he recorded in Coplef Recital Hall downtown. And through technology, we've been able to put this piece together as if we were playing in the same space along with the electronics and the music video. And this work is about the paintings of Goya, the paintings in the Prado. So it has a very eerie quality to it. And a lot of it is based on improvisation. And so Judith will be joining us to talk about her works. She composes a lot of pieces, both electroacoustic pieces as well as traditional classical music as well. So it'll be interesting for her to share with us how she met this video artist at the McDowell Colony and how this piece came to be. Oh my goodness, what an array of talent and resources, my goodness. Then Frequency and the Bremen Museum are both small organizations. One is a nonprofit music ensemble, the other, as Leslie describes it, is a very small museum in a very big museum pond. <laughs> How have collaborations such as this helped your organization survive the pandemic? So, Jan, I'll take the first pass at this and then turn it over to you. Um, for us, collaborations mean community, and community is something that we feel we really need. So we have really expanded our reach and our partnerships. We're not only looking for partners like Vent Frequency, but we're also sharing programming with other museums around the country, as well as promoting their programs. But what we love about doing these types of programs and what's kept us going is the idea that we can, in fact, in real time, have people tune into us and be with us, which is why we choose to do live streaming there are some pre-recorded pieces, but most of them, four of the six, will be performed live here at the Bremen and live stream so that people have a sense of being here with us and a sense of community. But what's kept us going, too, is our membership has stuck with us, even though we've been closed for a year. Most of our members have chosen to keep their membership going and to stick with us through our virtual programming. And I have to say that the year we've been closed, we've had more attendance, if you count our virtual programming, than we did in the year we were open. So we really feel like technology has kept us in front of people and we've been able to meet them where they live, give them thought-provoking programs that they can interact with and keep ourselves relevant because we're all about the now now. Hmm. Indeed true, Leslie. I can't emphasize all of the things that you said enough. We are eternally grateful for our sponsors, Georgia Council for the Arts, Fulton County Arts, the Mayor's Office of Cultural Affairs, those granting organizations in Georgia, in Atlanta, that have allowed us to continue our programming. And of course, our individual donors who have, as Leslie said, stuck with us. And so we're, we're grateful. I congratulate you on this ambitious program and all the work you have done throughout the past year to keep us connected. Leslie Gordon, Jan Berry Baker, thank you very much. Thank, thank you. you, thank you. Jan Berry Baker, Bent Frequency Co-Artistic Director, and Leslie Gordon, Bremen Museum Executive Director. 
The live-streamed Mirrors concert takes place Thursday at 7 p.m. A Zoom roundtable with the composers and performers will be at 8.15 p.m. More information will appear on our website, wabe.org slash citylights. The field of mental health counseling is growing rapidly, and Richmond Graduate University can equip you with everything you need as a licensed professional counselor while integrating your faith into your clinical practice. Programs are offered in Atlanta, Chattanooga, and online. Apply today at richmont.edu. That's R-I-C-H-M-O-N-T dot E-D-U. You love free, and at Ameris Bank, so do we. That's why we're proud to offer worry-free, hassle-free Ameris Bank free checking. Manage your money your way with convenient access to digital, mobile, and telephone banking, all with no monthly service fee or minimum balance requirements. At Ameris Bank, we're with you. For more information or to open an account, visit our local bankers in person or online at amerisbank.com slash free checking. Other fees such as overdraft fees may apply. Ameris Bank, member FDIC, equal housing lender. This is City Lights on WABE. I'm Lois Reitzes. Thank you for listening. Karen Johnson's latest documentary explores an underappreciated aspect of filmmaking, sound design, making waves. The art of cinematic sound demonstrates the history and use of sound in motion pictures. The filmmaker and producer joined me in December of 2019, ahead of the documentary's release. Here, she talks about her collaborators and the origin of Making Waves. I am the outsider to sound in our production team. My two producing partners are both uh, teachers. They've both taught sound. The director, Mitch Costin, is the K. Rose Endowed Chair in Sound at the University of Southern California. And she got that chair, which George Lucas and Steven Spielberg set up after a 30-year career as a sound editor. And my other producing partner, Bobette Buster, is kind of um, a story consultant and expert who has taught storytelling all over the world. And she also taught at USC for a while. She was my professor at USC when I went there. And so Bobette, while teaching a story class at Pixar, found out that Gary Rydstrom, who is the sound designer who has won the most Oscars, he works with Steven Spielberg and Pixar, that he was in her audience. And afterwards, she went up to him and said, you know, why hasn't anyone made a documentary about sound? Because a really brilliant documentary has been made uh, about cinematography called Visions of Light, the Art of Cinematography, or the something like that, Visions of Light being the best way to find it. Um, and so Gary said, well, we're busy working, but uh, it would be great if somebody did. Why don't you go talk to Midge Costin and put something together? And Bobette did that. And then uh, she came to me to produce because I've been producing documentary for a number of years. So that was how it originated. And 
the reason that it hadn't been made for all these years, in part, um, and probably in large part, is because of the rights that would be involved to include all of these clips and the complexity of making that work out. And that is a concept called fair use, which is an exception to the U.S. copyright law. So oh. we had to, we had we have a number of lawyers involved and, and carefully structure our movies so that we could fair use all these clips and put together this story. The documentary begins with the beginning of life itself, and we learn that sound is plugged into our prenatal existence. A fetus hears its mother's heartbeat. How does this example foreshadow what we'll learn about sound in this documentary? The film opens introducing us to the fact that sound is our first sense in the womb to really develop. And it is, it, it's interesting because it's almost becomes buried once we open our eyes and start to see. And it, what it foreshadows for me in the movie is the fact that after you watch the movie, you will probably be much more aware of your sense of sound and you will kind of awaken within yourself an attention to that sense that sort of became a little bit of a stepchild sense when you opened your eyes. Quite literally. You have an A-list of film directors, too many to name right now, but the likes of Francis Ford Coppola, Steven Spielberg, and George Lucas, Barbara Streisand, they make the point that People talk about the look of a film, but not the sound. How important is sound to our experience of a visual medium? Sound is absolutely important. I don't even think you would enjoy a movie anymore. Those of us who are accustomed to seeing movies with sound, I, I can't even imagine watching silent. I don't, I, I'm embarrassed to admit I'm a film person, but I don't enjoy silent cinema you know, from from way back. Um, but I just, it's critically important. And for me, when my producing partner first came to me about being involved, the first thing I reflected on was, as a child, my sister liked horror movies, and I did not, still don't. And so the compromise was to turn the sound off. And horror movies are absolutely not scary without sound. I mean, it's like you can almost process anything visually, but with sound, it's a whole different matter. So So, so I think it may be Spielberg or it may be Walter Murch who makes the point that sound is 50% of the movie. Both George Lucas and Steven Spielberg have that sort of their mantra. Steven Spielberg says, our ears lead our eyes to where the story lives. I found one of the most fascinating aspects of this documentary, the part about Saving Private Ryan. Mm -hmm. 
Would you talk about how sound design was used in that film and what made it extraordinary? I think uh, in that movie, Saving Private Ryan, Steven Spielberg used sound in many different ways. When you're designing sound on the film today, like Saving Private Ryan, you're bringing together a rich, complex orchestration of sounds. Then every film I've worked on with Steven Spielberg, he gives a gift of, here's a scene, here's a moment, and I'm counting on sound to help tell the story. Here you go. strikes me most about, especially the opening of Private Ryan, is that it was designed to use sound to tell a part of the story that it's not showing you. So a scene like that fully takes advantage of how a soldier takes in war, which is a pretty narrow point of view. Sound got to handle the scale of it. And we spent a lot of time on that first 25 minutes. It was weeks and weeks and weeks of just balancing all the sound effects that Gary and his crew provided. He particularly remembered the sound experiences of the World War II surviving soldiers that he had interviewed and the things that they told him about how they experienced the war and the sound of the war. And he and Gary Rydstrom, who did the sound design for that picture, used those concepts, some of those, or those experiences in creating the sound for the movie, like where they wanted to mimic the experience of the soldier who was near an exploded bomb and lost his sound, his um, sense of sound for a little bit. So I designed a sequence where when an explosion hits near Captain Miller, all the sound goes out. And that came from an actual veteran that told me that was how it affected him. So it put you deep inside his experience. And so they actually kind of do that in the movie, he goes inside Tom Hanks' head when that happens. And, you know, they also crafted the sound of the tanks coming in in a way that was almost as if they were predatory animals and coming after them that you know they really wanted to convey the feelings with the sound from what those soldiers experienced i thought not that that character lost his hearing for the moment but that in the horror of what was going on around him, he obliterated all the sound. I mean, in his mind, nothing existed except seeing his friends who were all blown up. You may be absolutely right. It's, you know, a lot of how you interpret a movie and how it speaks to you is a very personal thing. Would you please explain how the different elements of sound used in movies are similar to the instrumental groupings of an orchestra. I loved this part of the film. 
I think that the use of the orchestra graphic and analogy for sound design um, is one of the best things about the movie because it makes it really interest. It makes it really easy for people to understand all of the aspects of what comprise sound design. Because a lot of times when you talk about sound design, and even in the process of making this movie, talking about working on this movie, people would say, oh, I love, I love music. I love, the, I love the score. Well, in fact, the score is just one part of the orchestra. And there are all these other parts of the orchestra, voice of the actors, being a big part of the orchestra and how that's recorded and manipulated for the movie. Sound effects being another big part of the orchestra. And each of those parts then break down into to subparts. Each instrument grouping has subparts as well. So I think that it's a way that we can start to hear those separate pieces of the orchestra when we listen to a movie. And I don't mean of the real orchestra, I mean of the sound design orchestra. That graphic was indeed very effective and the the analogy is so perfect. It yes. is Walter Murch's analogy definitely that he uses and has applied to the films that he's done the sound design for. And he was very guided by music. Didn't he study with John Cage, or he was very drawn to the music of John Cage and the Paris avant-garde sound scene? He definitely was. He went to Paris as a young man, and what he discovered there were movies that were using sound in ways that he found more compelling than the movies he was seeing in America and also people who were experimenting with sound in ways that were avant-garde and different than what was uh, he was seeing in America. And definitely John Cage was someone that he was influenced by, whose concept was every kind of sound is a kind of music. As one whose training was in music and with a 40-year career in radio, I was thrilled with the documentary bringing out the fact that some of the biggest innovations in film sound had their roots in radio. Would you elaborate? Yes, definitely. Uh, A number of our interviewees talked about their background with listening to radio broadcasts as children. Robert Redford talked about how he would listen to the radio and how the sound effects that were used in old radio programs really brought those radio programs to life. George Lucas talked about the Whistler and the Shadow, which were radio programs that he listened to when he was a young man. And so this concept of using the variety and complexity of sound to bring to life a whole story that you're not even seeing carried over then when we started creating stories we could see. And the same kinds of techniques 
informed film sound that had been used on radio. And obviously one of the big pioneers of that was Orson Welles, who started in radio and then became a filmmaker. What was revolutionary about Alfred Hitchcock's approach to the use of sound? Alfred Hitchcock actually uh, created a sound script. We have interviewed for our film Liz Weiss, who is a a cinema professor from New York and and an expert on Hitchcock. And she's written a whole book on him called, I think, The Silent Scream. And Liz is the one who talked about and told us that, that he actually would create a sound script. Right. You see the sound, not sound effects necessarily, but the sound that the viewer is supposed to hear in a script as the actor sees the lines. Yes. And I think, so that was a very interesting note on how how much he respected the sound half of the picture of the movie equation. But also, I think the most stunning thing about him is his use of silence and how he knew to sculpt silence so that it would terrorize us, (laughs) Um, you know, make us sweat, whatever. Afraid of birds for life. Yes, exactly. I find that really intriguing. It's one of the sound concepts personally that I really related to is the idea of silence. And it made me realize some of the filmmakers that I really like, like Sofia Coppola, who have an appreciation uh, for using silence in their movies to, and Robert Redford, who I always really loved his work as a director. Anyway, Hitchcock kind of goes back to his work with silence. Hmm. Makes me think about my piano teacher demonstrated how Beethoven's use of silence, pauses, occasional rests between phrases were an important component of the music, that that was not the absence of notes. That was part of the music and the sensory experience you were supposed to have. I love that. I think absolutely it is. We'll return to my conversation with filmmaker Karen Johnson about her documentary, Making Waves, after a quick break. You're tuned to WABE Atlanta. You're listening to City Lights on WABE. I'm Lois Reitzes. Thank you for joining me. Let's get back to my conversation with the filmmaker Karen Johnson. She produced the documentary Making Waves, The Art of Cinematic Sound. Here, she talks about the sonic impact of Star Wars. I believe that Star Wars was so astonishing to us in sound because, first off, George Lucas, the visionary filmmaker who created it, and I say visionary, see, I could say ingenuary, because (laughs) he really got from his very first 
um, moment of thinking about it that it was a vision and sound together equation. And so knowing that to really be moved by these other worlds, they would have to feel real to us. And he always wanted the soundscape to be made up of real sound. So he tasked Ben Burt with creating that world of real sound for every aspect of his story. And he gave him a lot of time to do it. One of my favorite things also in the movie is I love Ben Burt's Sound of Star Wars map that we got a shot of in his office that shows where he recorded various sounds of Star Wars across the L.A. County. (laughs) Would you talk about the Wookiee? The Wookiee? Yes, yes. So the Wookiee, obviously, George knew that was a very important character for people to relate to his story. And so he wanted Ben Burt to work on that, finding the voice of the Wookiee right away. And so Ben um, set out to look at a bunch of different animals and try and figure out where he could find this kind of vocalizing that could seem like this great, big, hairy, but conversational being. And um, he ended up really teasing those sounds out of a baby bear. We were trying to find an animal that had enough vocal expressiveness in its sounds that we could use it for the wookie. So there was a young bear named Pooh, and we spent an afternoon with this bear in a pen, coaxing it to say different sounds. The way they got it to make sound was to show it bread. It loved bread. The bear would... And then you give him the bread, and then he'd be like... George wanted to know before they filmed the movie, how would the Wookiee sound? Well, you said it, Chewie. This is not the way that most filmmakers worked at that time. I knew the sound was part of the foundation of what the movie was going to be. So everything had to have been figured out way ahead of time. You know, the way that sound can be manipulated now is so amazing and and even more so now than it was when he was doing Star Wars. But yeah, he crafted that into the Wookiee's language. (laughs) And R2-D2, it's explained how we finally are let into what R2-D2 is saying through C-3PO. So he's the interpreter, but it's so amazing to see how these sound artists achieve these sounds. I loved the explanation of how the sound was created for King Kong some decades before that. Yes, that was created by Marie Spivak, who maybe is one of the earliest sound designers, somebody who actually really manipulated sounds and designed them a particular way he wanted them. He also made other sounds of King Kong. We have um, just some images of, of him working on those, but 
you know, the sound of King Kong banging on his chest and just all all of the the other, you know, similar to Star Wars, the other characters that inhabited King Kong's world. He was sort of working away on those. And at the time, I think that um, Ben Burt told us that the studio didn't even realize that he was sort of back in the, you know, back in the depths of the studio somewhere doing all of this amazing sound work. Because, in fact, something the film brings out is that the studios had this industrial attitude towards sound. They had, I guess back then you didn't call them files, but they had recordings of crowd noises, cars crashing, and they would just plug them in. The Westerns have the same gallop and horses whinnying. When did it become a recognized art form within the studio system? Uh, Walter Murch is the very first sound designer. And that was a credit that Francis Ford Coppola gave him. I heard Walter ask about it when we were um, interviewed one time, and he said, Francis asked him, what credit would you like? And he said, he thought about it, and he thought about the idea of an interior designer, I believe he said, designing, you know, the space in a room. And so he said he thought about himself and the fact that he was designing the sound in an auditorium, you know, in the space of the air, essentially. Um, and so he came up with that credit, sound designer. He mm. said, I'll, I'll take sound designer. <laughs> and a college major in that area was born. Yes, exactly. <laughs> Another important chapter in the film is devoted to Apocalypse Now. How did that movie change the way sound was used? In Apocalypse Now, Walter Murch worked with Francis Ford Coppola, who were, at that time, working in a, in a production company together and um, with George Lucas. And Coppola knew that he wanted the sound of Apocalypse Now to be as powerful as the visual story that he was telling. During the shooting of Apocalypse Now, Francis heard a record by Tomita, which was The Planets by Gustav Holst in four track. The idea was that you put speakers at each corner of your room and you sat in the center and you were surrounded by the music. Francis heard it and thought, this is how I want the film to sound. But all of us working on the sound, Richard Beggs, Mark Berger, and myself, we'd only worked in mono. None of us had even worked on a stereo film, let alone this whole new six-track surround format. We were exploring the unknown, going into this whole new continent where we move objects all the way around the theater, which had never been done before. 
If you're breaking new ground, then people who are interested in new ground come because they want to participate in it, and more ground gets broken. So Walter, similar to Hitchcock, wrote basically a sound script for Apocalypse Now and came up with this concept of his sound team being like an orchestra to help him create the various sounds of war for Apocalypse Now and then also designed exactly how you would hear those in your movie theater when you went to see the movie. So one of the most stunning examples of that is a helicopter that goes across the screen as you watch that movie. And literally when people sat down to hear that movie, it was the first time they really experienced that immersive feeling of the helicopter starting on one side of the theater and traveling all the way across it to the other side. And so that was really stunning at the time. I mean, now we sort of take that for granted a little bit, maybe not focused on it, but we certainly experience it all the time because that is 5.1, which has become the standard for theaters. And and home entertainment, yeah. These effects were made possible because of the development in sound technology for home audio entertainment. The film does a good job of showing what it's like to hear in stereo and then quadraphonic and then the surround. The film also does a good job explaining how rock music recording had an impact on sound design and films. One more way the Beatles were geniuses. <laughs> yes, and and uh, also, obviously, their manager, George Martin, genius, to recognize that the John Cage idea, all things are music. And so when they did uh, Number 9, which was a song that came out in the 60s, that a lot of the sound designers that we interviewed very specifically remembered hearing that song and thinking, oh my gosh, this is, this is sound design. This is like you could do this with, with movies, what they're doing in this song with all of these evoking all these feelings from these simply these weird sounds. So the documentary goes on to explain how the digital age made even greater achievements possible for sound designers. And the documentary ends with this wonderful montage of film sound. The work you all do make massive contributions to the telling of the story. (laughs) And I love all your cleverness and ingenuity. And I love the sense of fun. It makes these moments eternal. You know how to whistle, don't you, Steve? Come on, man! Oh. Uh-huh.
I wondered, is that sort of the filmmaker's love letter to the viewer? It definitely is. I think that the film itself is a love letter to cinemaphiles like us everywhere. And it's a bit of a lesson, too, that lets you enjoy what you already enjoy even more at a different level. Filmmaker and producer Karen Johnson. Her latest documentary is Making Waves, the Art of Cinematic Sound. You can watch it for free on YouTube. You've been listening to City Lights, WABE's daily exploration of Atlanta arts and culture. Tomorrow at 11 a.m. we'll hear about the Emory Chamber Music Society's new initiative, Music and Healing, plus a new exhibition at Georgia Tech reveals its close ties to the renowned Bauhaus School of Architecture in Germany. City Lights producer is Summer Evans. Shelley Canavy is our engineer, and I'm Lois Reitzes. I would so love it if you'd follow me on Twitter at L-O-I-S-R-E-I-T-Z-E-S. You can also find archived stories at wabe.org slash citylights. Thank you for listening to WABE, Atlanta's choice for NPR. Hi, it's Terry Gross, the host of Fresh Air. We bring you in-depth, long-form interviews with actors, directors, musicians, authors, journalists, and more. Listen to our Peabody Award-winning Fresh Air podcast from WHYY and NPR. Have you donated to WABE yet? I know you've heard us talking about why it's important, but it doesn't have to be this big decision. You can give at whatever amount fits your budget. It can be a spur-of-the-moment thing. You already get so much out of public radio, so just go for it. Visit wabe.org slash donate and become a member right now. And thank you.